Welcome everyone to the Lion-Faced Guru podcast number 7. In this episode, Kim Rinpoche, Lama Karl and Acharya Ugi from the Pemako Buddhist lineage will talk about one of the essential aspects of Dharmic practice, Bodhicitta, the aspiration to achieve Buddhahood for the liberation of all sentient beings. As simple and straightforward this aspect of Bodhicitta might seem, it's one of the topics so many practitioners of Dharma struggle with. And a quick look into Dharma literature reveals that this isn't due to a lack of explanation. The books are full of explanations regarding bodhicitta. Yet, people have a hard time connecting their own experience to it, which often leads to doubt, confusion, frustration and hesitation towards the Dharma and their practice thereof. In the following pragmatic discussion, we will address these difficulties from our own personal understanding that we've come to due to our own experiences and challenges with the aspect of bodhicitta. So we will discuss the actual development or unraveling of bodhicitta and that there's not really a contradiction between wanting liberation for oneself first and wanting it for all others. We will further discuss how natural bodhicitta is to us already and how important it is to connect to our own feeling of it and not just read about it. This then leads into a discussion of the two kinds of bodhicitta, relative and absolute, and how proper emptiness practice automatically leads to bodhicitta and proper bodhicitta practice automatically leads to emptiness inside, until their perfect unity is revealed as absolute bodhicitta. Enjoy! So how, how does it come that it's, it's not for a lack of theoretical knowledge um, that people don't, or that we, when we come to the Dharma practice, don't understand bodhicitta or have a hard time understanding it because the books are full of it. Mm. So how does it come that it's uh, such a difficult topic? I, I think that's, that's the same problem with basically anything about uh internal yogic meditative contemplative practice that you know there are i don't know million books where it's explain, explained in some books extremely well in some books less well but there's tons of material about bodhicitta and about everything else in yogic practice dharma practice and the challenge uh, that might become a problem always is to have concepts and theory translated into experience. What is kind of interesting also is that is that sometimes people have, um, let's say, recognition of basic nature, recognition of Buddha nature, recognition of our wakeful nature spontaneously. So they already have that experience before they come to Dharma. And... Uh, uh, I, I've seen this um, maybe a few times during my career that that um, you know these kind of people come to Dharma guides, instructors, teachers, but then the teachers don't understand it. They don't. They kind of, for I suppose, for various reasons, don't understand 
how somebody could have a recognition or experience of bodhicitta without dharma practice. And this creates kind of a um, funny situation between the person who's had a spontaneous experience and, and then a representative of some tradition or lineage. But um, yeah, I think it's the same problem with everything that, you know, books are full of theoretical information and knowledge, but then, you know, how to transform, how to have the actual experience. I think that's, that's the issue. And that's, of course, you know, obvious thing that, you know, whatever we practice um, should enable us to have that experience and those experiences. To me, it's uh, like a completely obvious point, but unfortunately, it it always isn't. People get stuck with uh, ink and paper. You know, theory is there just to support everything else, to give structure to internal experience, to meditation practice, and that's it. But, uh, you know, I've seen um, Buddhist scholars of different vehicles, Mahayana and Vajrayana, make the observation that, um, unfortunately, Uh, It is the scholarly aspect of Dharma, the theoretical aspect of Dharma that has way too much emphasis in the world. When it should be that the theory is there just to give structure for the internal practice. So that's the way it should be that, not that you're reading books for put your let's say that if you practice the dharma for two hours a day so not that you read books for hour and a half and practice for 30 minutes but the other way around you read for 10 minutes uh, and then sit on the cushion and meditate or chant or whatever you practice for the rest of the time so that's that's the way how it should be and that's in my view, it's kind of an obvious point, but but uh, to my surprise, it isn't obvious for a lot of people. Uh, yoga, dharma, is not an academic. It can be made into an academic study and subject of academic study. But obviously, you know, if we look at the beginnings of yogic tradition, Buddhist tradition, it's obviously about experiences. It's obviously about changes that happen in our mind and in our psyche that changes the way how we see the world and view the world. So there it is, you know. Uh, but somehow things get con- confusing and the whole thing becomes upside down, gets upside down. Yeah. Not only does it get confusing with uh, if one is first presented with uh, only theory, but it also Mm. seems so far away. Uh, There's this distance between, uh, uh, like in my own experience, uh, if like quite often I find that if I read uh, or or perhaps more earlier in my uh, meditation career, I would approach these books and I couldn't really relate it to any of my own experiences. 
even right. though in retrospect I've realized that oh like that's what it is but that's mm. that's like that that has continued that has been something I've experienced several times but it's just that it's difficult to approach it from somebody else's in uh, uh, conceptual uh, uh, viewpoint because everybody talks from a everybody talks and everybody writes uh, from a from their own um, you know conceptual understanding and we use different languages like that uh, and sometimes it's quite difficult to relate so that in the case of bodhicitta even just using the word bodhicitta it uh, just makes it very uh, foreign exotic while the experience of it is something that I think everybody, regardless of, uh, well, not maybe, not perhaps everybody, but the majority of people on this earth has experienced the meaning of that at one, like uh, even just for a short glimpse. Mm. And I think the most important part then is to make people understand that, uh, make that connection so that they can then uh, work on mm. cultivating it from there on yeah but i think that's that's the difficult part always for people and for our samsaric mind we hear about something like bodhicitta or compassion and we immediately think we don't have it or it's something that we have to produce or we have to make something for it to happen we never really assume that we already have it that it's already complete inside of us and I think that's that's what I struggled the most with was that that's, that discrepancy in my mind of um, on one hand it says it's your basic nature compassion is is at the heart of your of your mind and then my my uh, distorted perception of it of seeing nothing of it like huh? I'm judging people I feel disconnected from people. I, I don't feel like that. And if, if I'm really honest with myself, I sit down to practice to get rid of that shit in my head, which, uh, which makes me feel miserable. What was really useful to me when I started practicing uh, back in the day, I started with Zen Buddhism. So, so um, one like the f uh, really foundational thing in Zen Buddhism is the four basic bodhisattva vows, which is universal to Mahayana, but it's uh, emphasized quite a bit. And um, I remember the first couple of months when I did my practice, uh, you know, we were always reciting the four vows with other recitations in practice sessions. And and um, for the first couple of months, I didn't read those vows because I realized that it had a, um, a word vow there. So, you know, vow is something that is, you know, if you vow something, it's a deep commitment. Um, but then, you know, I gave myself a little time to contemplate the meaning of those bodhisattva vows. And I was reading some books about... Um, Zen Buddhism and Mahayana Buddhism in general uh, to help me understand, you know, what was meant by those vows. Why were there? Why there was the, there were these uh, bodhisattva practices, and um, uh, why was it there? And um, 
I gave myself a little time with it until one day it kind of just clicked. You know, it made perfect sense that, um, well, I should also mention that up to that point, I had lived a very colorful and um, also insecure life since childhood. So I had lots of experiences and traumas, uh, stressful experiences that added to my uh, myself being emotionally unstable and insecure as a as a person and and um, all that. So you know, when I came to Dharma, I would say that you know I was quite ready for the medicine, quite ready for the practice, and also ready for to understand why uh, practicing to attain. Uh, practicing to stabilize the basic state uh, uh, to attain Buddhahood for all beings, why it was so important. So it kind of just clicked very quickly. But uh, so, so again, you know, like I always say that, you know, we do, um, we really need to acknowledge as practitioners that we suffer, that we are confused that we are really confused about our own existence. And then, then only we start having a need for Dharma practice. Because if we don't first acknowledge that, why do you practice? And there's, there's, there's always people like that in every Sangha, also in our Sangha. You know, they kind of struggle with, you know, why am I doing Dharma practice? Why am I doing these mantras and whatever practices? Because they haven't perfectly discovered that they have discovered some that okay i'm here because you know i acknowledge partially that i suffer but you know it has to be like a how should i say like a, a comprehensive understanding about suffering and then then we can practice and then uh, further you know sometimes we see i see it in our sangha that um, people struggle in the beginning with bodhicitta, with compassion. You know, bodhicitta can be viewed from different perspectives, so we can give different meanings to it. But from the uh, perspective of practice, it means that we cultivate compassion towards others. And in this way, discover our basic state. But, uh, you know, sometimes I see practitioners in our sangha struggle with, you know, compassion uh, because they are still working with, you know, in our system, we speak of these 13 bumis, 13 levels uh, or stages of practice. And um, the first six stages, the six bumis, they are directly, directly relate or correlate to Hinayana. So, you know, this is why I sometimes when people might be a bit confused or stressed that, well, I don't feel that compassion. I say that, you know, calm down, calm down, just do your practice. And, you know, when you have, when you advance in um, awakening experiences from first to six, 
and you know as you keep practicing every day uh, you kind of just grow into it naturally so it is not in my view it's not a necessary requirement from the beginning but uh, an advice that i always give is that think about it you know we have eight billion human beings on this planet and we have animals and you know according to uh, yogic theory buddhist theory there is also like a non-physical worlds where there are countless beings in many different forms but just you know whether you believe in non-physical worlds or not if you just look at the physical world think about it you know everybody else has the same problem and everybody else suffers of the same problem that of that of mind that how should i say like uh, is stuck with the thought of i or me so with that simple contemplation you know you start to your heart starts opening up your original heart starts opening up your basic nature starts opening up um you know and that's compassion you feel the suffering of others and that's actually a really good meditation practice a truly mahayana meditation where you just sit down and be present to the suffering to the pain and confusion of others and you keep in contact with that pain and confusion so that was my long and kind of lengthy and rambling um, um, statement about you know how i came to in contact with uh, mahayana practice and compassion bodhicitta and that it was uh, preceded by deep existential confusion anguish really existential anguish and you know how uh, to me when i found bodhicitta it was you know after that initial um contemplation of couple of months it just felt like it made perfect sense and it has been like a compass compass of compassion since you know for many years now we can uh, speak of bodhicitta from two different perspectives absolute bodhicitta and then relative bodhicitta so if we look at it, look at it from the point of view of practice you know we are uh, we have confusion existential confusion because of thinking and feeling and perceiving uh, through the sense of self so that's exactly what it is compass compassion is compass <laughs> yeah with a uh, with the different vehicles over the years and based on my own experience i've kind of come to a view that i don't i haven't seen probably there are people with the same view but i haven't seen it been spoken of so you have hinayana mahayana uh well uh, let's forget about vajrayana it can be a part of mahayana it is a part of mahayana you have hinayana and mahayana 
And uh, in my mind, I separate that from the outer structures here, like the, the different schools. So in my viewpoint, you can have, for example, Theravada practitioners who are actually have a Mahayana perspective on the world. And you can have Mahayana practitioners mm-hmm. in, in form and name, but they don't have uh, yeah. the, the Mahayana. So they're much more psychological states than, than actual physical structures in the world, the way I see it. And, yeah. uh, and uh, um, it's, uh, you also mentioned that, yeah, you mentioned this, that we have people in our own Sangha who, who struggle with their practice and also with the, with the motivation to practice, to actually feel the motivation to practice for all sentient beings. Mm. And I think it's inevitable that we start. It's not just fine uh, to be there, but it's inevitable that we start out that way, searching, because we start out with our own problems, usually. Um, uh, I guess mm. there are people who, who can feel this from the beginning, the, the motivation. But for most people, uh, they, we start out with our own situation, and then we have to, uh, through uh, whatever life circumstances that lead us to the recognition that we are actually suffering and also that we that it is possible to do something about it we start then the process that uh that can lead to that recognition that oh yeah it actually applies to everyone Mm. Uh, opening the mahayana structure in the mind not the mahayana structure in wearing whatever color of the robe or yeah or, that's that's a really really important point bodhicitta needs to be genuine yeah that, absolutely felt that it. sums it up and mm-hmm. uh, and also one point is that uh, you mentioned it's a compass and that's that has been my experience as well uh, but it's also important to note that uh once you once you become a a bodhisattva, a Mahayana practitioner. Mm. It's not, in my experience, it's not like then you always have access to this, to this, uh, right. to this um, uh, bodhicitta motivation. Sometimes, and like for long periods of time, it might be lost uh, on the surface, um, and then, but it's still kind of down there, and it comes up, and it comes up, and it comes up. And my experience is that. Uh, it has come up when I when I when I have needed the, the most needed it the most. So mm-hmm. when I get properly confused, suddenly it comes up and it just reorients the or it, it um, re re yeah reorients the practice and the life situation again. So it it stakes out um, it points out the the course again and again and again. Uh, yeah. So this is like the relative perspective of uh, that. It's not something that, that you once you attain it, it's uh, it's final. Uh, of course, in the end, um, mm. when it, when absolute bodhicitta opens up completely, then you're done, finished. Mm. But before that, it's not something you necessarily. Uh, can pride yourself with every day. <laughs> I remember something related to what you said, Carl. Um, I remember that I practiced Zen Buddhism for four years, 
four years. And um, I remember that, you know, I took the Bodhisattva vows in like a, uh, what, it's like a lay ordination ceremony. I took refuge and Bodhisattva vows. And um, uh, because, because I felt that they were so important is why, uh, you know, it kind of um, struck a bell for me or, you know, struck, how do you say, struck a nerve. It was very meaningful to me, Bodhisattva vows. But I didn't, because there is, well, there is some discussion about energetics in, uh, I practiced Rinzai, Japanese Rinzai Zen. There is some discussion about energetics, about pranic energy in Rinzai, but it's not very, it's not a thorough uh, explanation about energetics. So it was much later when I had already practiced Tantra for some time when I really, you know, discovered and noticed that, you know, when I cultivate, when I express this bodhicitta motivation by reciting the by, by reciting the vows or just by thinking about the motivation there is something very strong happening in my energy body in my aura in my energy body so uh, i kind of just one day cultivated bodhicitta i noticed that oh heck you know i never noticed that before Right, and what happens is that it's very simple, really. It's uh, it's stupidly simple. <laughs> what is that? You know, our problem is that we are self-centered. Me, 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 I, I, I. Angry, angry, anxious, anxious, pissed off, jealous, greedy, and so on. Lack of self-esteem, and so on. It's like an endless list of self-centeredness, uh, you know, crystallizing into this I thought, I, 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 me, 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 right? And what bodhicitta does when we generate compassion is that it's the opposite, opposite energetic uh, movement. Act happens in the energy body. So self-centeredness, the energy condenses here and uh, how should I say, um, enforces the thought of I, but bodhicitta does the exact opposite. It opens our, opens our mind, opens our heart, and establishes our basic state, which is selfless. So it's that simple. But think about, you know, uh, well, if somebody gets pissed off about this, I'm sorry, but this is just a... Uh, just the fact that, you know, if you practice the Dharma, you practice Vipassana, Buddhist meditation, you do inquiry into the, you deconstruct the sense of self without bodhicitta. Without bodhicitta, there is no outgoing motion. There is no opening up of the energy body. You're just, you know, there is this self-centeredness and you start deconstructing that with analytical meditation, vipassana, right? So because that outgoing motion is not there, you only access the energy body partially. 
And this is the defining difference between Hinayana and Mahayana. In Mahayana, compassion, bodhicitta is cultivated so that there is that outgoing motion and that we can access the whole energy body, the whole aura, all chakras and nadis, and then use that for analytical meditation. It's that simple. I wonder, you know, uh, Mahayana developed out of the basic small vehicle of Buddhism back in the day, maybe like a few hundred years or something after Shakyamuni Buddha's time. And it must have been like a, you know, one of those Eureka moments when somebody realized that, heck, when I cultivate compassion, there's something amazing happening in my energy body, right? You know, up until that point, they had just been uh, deconstructing the self-illusion partially. But suddenly there was much more material for practice. I also think that um, because we have that self-centeredness and it's our default mode for such mm. a long time, we can only start there often until we have that glimpse of absolute bodhicitta of that outgoing experience. But um, I think what, what helped me to understand it was seeing it Bodhicitta is seeing that you have a solution and it's not the solution for yourself, but for everyone. But for that to happen, to generally feel that, you have to know for yourself first that it works. You, you don't try to, to um, guide yeah. someone through the forest, through a path. You don't know if it really leads to, uh, to the end of the forest. Hmm. So, so it's kind of natural that we we back off that concept of bodhicitta if we don't feel it, that it does so much for us yet. Mm -hmm. So we first have to get a, a liberating experience of the Dharma, mm -hmm. some kind of certainty on our own mind, on our own problems to see, wow, this really works. Then it comes from faith to certainty, to personal experience. And then I think it's really easy to develop that that uh, bodhicitta motivation because you you know that there is a solution to that from your own experience definitely uh, Mahayana needs to be built on Hinayana uh, like uh, you could say that advanced practice needs to be built on foundational practice foundational insights definitely mm. in my case uh I I hadn't really I don't think I had uh, started proper practice when I first encountered uh, bodhicitta. Uh, so actually, the first time I <laughs> I um, encountered the word was at university in a that was a proper academic setting of uh, mm -hmm. East East Asian religion at OK course as a to, to build into my philosophy studies. And uh, the, the presentation there was that, uh, like the Mahayana path was presented as uh, practitioners, bodhisattvas, uh, who take this vow to not attain uh, mm. full enlightenment before uh, 
everybody else uh, is freed. Yeah. Uh, and I, I remember already back then it was like, this doesn't make any sense. Like, how, how do you relate this to the actual world? And I didn't have any experience at that time, or, or I did have very little experience, but, but it just didn't seem to make sense to me. But um, so I've talked about, of course, before, and it's something that comes up regularly with, uh, with uh, various mind-altering substances like psychedelics. And I think that was the first time that I, uh, like the first proper trip, uh, I had this experience of, which is, it's called ego death in, um, in uh, psychedelic terms. Um, and it's this experience of, of having to go through the death process and then it's not so clear to me actually what what exactly still it's not so clear to me like in I can't I cannot bring the experience that much back in terms of like all the hallucinations or whatever I experienced but one thing was that this connection this deep connection to all beings that stayed mm. with me for a few hours afterwards and it also flipped completely over to this complete uh, isolation once the drug wore off but that was what happened to me then was that before that I had been completely self-absorbed. Like uh, uh, I remember like we were a friend of mine and I uh, were drinking quite heavily at the time and we were just going to the stores and we were stealing all the beer. Like we would just take whatever we needed because it was ours to take uh, all kinds of rationalization processes of uh, these big uh, capitalist stores or uh, feeding off of uh you know the really like <laughs> like um rug, rug rat mentality but but what happened uh, after that was that i couldn't steal anymore like i just couldn't uh uh there was this um my conscience <laughs> started I, I got into touch with my conscience because uh, because of this experience of whatever I do to other people is basically like I'm doing it to myself, uh, um, like on a on a metaphorical level. That uh, there is no like if you hurt other people in any other way, it's mm. it's as if you you would start beating yourself in the face. Uh, and this and it came back also. Uh, prior to finding Buddhism, um, this uh, intense feeling. I remember after finishing my philosophy students, I had no idea what I was going to do. I, I just knew that I had enough of this uh, intellectual chess game that is Western academic philosophy. So I wanted to do something else. And uh, there was also one time with a, I was sitting with a friend and suddenly it just burst like it felt like my heart opened up and uh, again speaking metaphorically there was as if a voice just said you know what you, you know what you uh, what you have to do and and that is to help other beings uh, um, so again I had no idea after that like how the fuck do I go about uh, helping other beings you know I, I, I was as confused I was really confused and uh, uh, what happened was that I, I started physical uh, therapy school, um, which didn't go well. But anyways, it's um, uh, 
Yeah, no, it came uh, prior to Buddhism, prior to, it was this recognition of, of this, that we're, we're in the same boat mm. and you can either uh, focus on yourself or you can help out with the situation here. Um, uh, I can actually remember, as you were talking about that, I remembered remember a clear sense of, you know, that essential point of trying to help and support others. I remember it from, from childhood and through the youth, but, you know, I, I didn't know, you know, I was um, a student of music when I was a teen- teenager. And um, during those days, I remember that I was searching for the truth from music, from musical expression, from composing from playing instruments and stuff but then <laughs> then eventually i realized that heck i don't think i will find it from scales and chords and and melodies and harmonies so so that's how the detour into dharma for the next 20 years happened and i think that uh, uh, one point that i forgot to mention was that uh, what happens with this attitude once Maybe not so much consciously, like you can recognize it from beginning, but this is speaking from now and perhaps looking back, is that uh, uh, whatever suffering it is that you experience after this realization or, or together with this bodhicitta motivation, it becomes a way of learning how to help other beings because... Uh, mm. If you don't have any, if you don't have any understanding of what suffering means uh, in practice, then there is no way of relating to other beings. So, like whatever is thrown at you, then uh, becomes this. Uh, it's like the like the school of uh, of learning how to relate and how to actually help uh, other beings, and, it, and it's a completely different perspective on on life and on 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 these hardships uh that uh, it makes it also easier to deal with one's own stuff uh which i believe is why also a part of why this bodhicitta motivation to actually practice for the benefit of all, all beings is so radical because it's absolutely radical uh mm. from the perspective of perspective of the ego the the i mm. right yeah yeah there are people who um many people in our world from the samsara in a samsaric state they try to help others give all their energy into helping others but they don't understand suffering not their their own one and not the ones the want the suffering from people they help or try to help so it's noble in a sense but misguided in another sense because without understanding of suffering and uh, you don't really have anything to offer solutions. And that's the, that's the genius of, you know, I don't, I don't think that Buddhism to me is Buddha Dharma. It's like a method or a method, methodo, methodology to uh, understand ourselves. To me, Buddhism is not a religion. Right, mm. but a genius of this method is that it has two fundamental elements: there's wisdom and there is compassion. 
And these two are, uh, you know, you, we can um, investigate and practice wisdom and compassion as two separate things. And there are different practices for, for both, but eventually they unite. They are understood that it's the same nature of mind that is both wise as well as compassionate. But when it comes to practice, it's, it's you know, when you said that thing about, um, you said something about, um, you know, trying to help, but still suffering oneself. So, you know, in Buddhism, these two, wisdom and compassion, always are together. Because you can't have the other one. You can't, you know, our basic nature is what it is. You can't take half of it out, Right. So that's one thing. But another thing is that wisdom and compassion as practices, as compassion practice that opens us up and wisdom practice that, you know, Vipassana meditation, analytical meditation, where you start seeing in a sober, clear way. And you investigate with a sober mind, with clear seeing, you investigate into these self-habits, self-formulations, um, self-based tendencies that happen in your mind, in your emotions. Uh, so, and that insight, when you, when that seeing of clarity penetrates through our blind spots, our spots of blindness, you know, there is further clarity, ex uh, expansion of clarity, clarity becoming fuller, but also there is, um, you know, after these moments of insight, uh, compassion feels different. So it's always two. There would not be no sense of, you know, if we focused. Well, it's it's kind. Of, well, this is a, perhaps a bit difficult to say, but uh, Buddha Dharma. Buddhism as a yogic method focuses on removing our self-based ignorance. So that's definitely like a heavy on the wisdom end. That's a wisdom wisdom project, right? But we can't we can't go reach the end of that wisdom project without compassion, which is the you know ties up to the previous point of Mahayana Hinayana discussion. But there are, you know, there are sanghas uh, who kind of um, and methods that emphasize compassion. But it's it's like a silly endeavor, you know. If you understand that our basic nature itself, it has not only one flavor, not only one function, not only one characteristics characteristic but several of them so it doesn't make sense you know uh, when we have this theory this understanding not to even mention experience of our basic nature that some method emphasizes compassion or love over wisdom they always need to be 50 50 and eventually when the ultimate realization comes they are both at the same time. The other is 
not even 1% more or less. <laughs> yeah, one, one way that I view uh, Christianity is that it, it has a heavy focus on, on, um, on compassion and uh, love and love for your, I don't know how to say in English, but uh, love for your next, like your, your neighbor. Your, your neighbor yeah um, but uh, I think that it's it, it's evident there also what happens when when then wisdom wisdom yeah. is not not in place because because yeah. I guess one one way to view the whole Jesus story of the you know taking on the suffering of all getting crucified regardless mm. of whether it happened or not in in historical like as a fact. Yeah. There's this bodhicitta motivation there that you you're actually practicing for for the um, to relieve the world of of suffering and sin. Yeah, that's yes, exactly yeah. so. That's exactly so. And it's 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 even in the the one line from Christianity. This this whole paradox of help yourself to help others which is buddha dharma this you relieve your suffering and then you can relieve the suffering from others mm. love thy neighbor as thyself if you have complete hatred toward yourself you cannot really <laughs> help others yeah. so this is in there it's all also yeah. in there and, and this is very much i think uh, uh relevant today uh, in a society where we see all these kind of uh, surface virtue that really seems to be based on anger and and hate more than more than actual appreciation and gratitude and love for for what we have, uh, which is this opportunity to do good. Yeah, it gets completely distorted if you if you take out that aspect of compassion, it can become into the most violent uh, ideology. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And that, you see that in Christianity. That it has, and, and it has happened in Buddhism, it has happened in all of these religions, that if it turns sour, <laughs> it turns incredibly sour, because it's based on good intentions. And that's the most dangerous uh, path there is. Uh, like with this uh, idiot compassion or fool's compassion in Buddhist mm. in Buddhist terms, uh, right. yeah. But you mentioned this paradox of of helping others through helping yourself, and I think that that that's not clear to that many people how like how that actually works. But one way I've come to see it is that you know uh, we don't have that much. Uh, as, as individual human beings, we don't have that much control over the world. Like there's billions of others, other human beings, and, and you know, endless other beings, uh, and we cannot, we don't actually have that much control over the over the life circumstance or or like the totality of, of existence. But we can do something about ourselves, and uh, what what the way I see it is that when when you uh, you know the the first um, first uh, uh, of the four vows bodhisattva vows, I vow to liberate all sentient beings. So that's on one in one sense looks completely impossible 
uh, on a on a outer level to liberate all beings. And uh, uh, but uh, what we can do, and what 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 I have come to see is that you can liberate all beings from yourself, from your tyranny, from your anger, from mm. your all of these emotions that uh, directly affect not only you know uh, the the immediate uh, surroundings, but it has rippling effects. Uh, In the basic Mahayana theory, you know, there are the six classes of beings, different kinds of beings, different kinds of existences, right? Different kinds of emotional states and, and like, um, you know, ident- identification as, uh, identification with certain kinds of mind stage that creates these six classes of beings. But, but then outside and inside of it simultaneously, outside and inside of the six realms uh, is, are the Buddhas. So, so everybody else is inside the wheel in samsaric realms, but only Buddhas are outside of it and inside at the same time. So, the uh, just something that you said, Carl, you know, led me to uh, say this because, uh, you know, we started discussing how Bodhicitta can seem so distant and far and so advanced and scary to people. You know, if you read some classics and it starts with, you know, even the first page where where the author has written like these venerations to all these Buddhas and Bodhisattvas who, you know, are hundred million thousand bodhisattvas in different realms and you know it's so scary on the first page that you might not even make on page three where bodhicitta is mentioned but uh, just it was beautifully said what you said Carl about uh, liberating all beings in our own mind stream because that means that when we do attain Buddhahood when we become fully liberated of all delusional mind functioning, it means that it's it's not a, like I said, you know, we are no longer inside that washing machine of samsaric realms. We are in it, but also outside of it at the same time. So um, I've, I've spent a lot of time contemplating this, that, you know, a lot of Buddhism, a lot of stuff from the Buddhist tradition seems very scary. Not to even mention Christian ones, because they only think that only Jesus can, only Jesus is the Son of God, which is completely uh, misleading idea entirely. But, uh, you know, also Buddhist tradition with all the prestige and, you know, scary prestige, bad kind of prestige, you know, it makes us think that Buddhas are these completely, you know, sort of like aliens on earth, which is one sense is true because somebody whose mind has no stains and has no blind spot, has no um, 
dark holes, that is very rare in this world, in this samsaric world. But at the same time, it doesn't, it doesn't, um, you know, all that mysticality and all that woo-woo and all the bad kind of prestige that is attached to Buddhahood and full enlightenment is completely misleading. So, so I, I liked what you said that in a really plain and kind of secular explanation of bodhicitta that I just wanted to add that when fully, full enlightenment is reached, we simply are and remain sober. We are and remain, we keep having this heart of kindness, heart of love and compassion while being sober and clear and grounded. And that's it. That's all. I think a lot of this misunderstanding from these old uh, texts, it's not a problem with the old texts. It's a problem with the... Because as modern Westerns, we are in this weird uh, place where while we still teach our children through stories, Mm. we as adults somehow uh, have this... Uh, blanket over our minds that just rejects stories as a carrier for morals, for insight. So when like all these stories are actually, they're not intellectual in any way, I, uh, or uh, um, at least at least uh, like uh, the ideal story are not meant to be understood, but they're actually transmitters of bodhicitta, transmitters of the nature of mind. Uh, on a uh, much like um, well on a subconscious level but uh, but not in the sense of like un- unconscious but you know it, it, it happens not on the intellectual rational level this transmission uh, but it can be blocked by it and I think that's what we're seeing uh, so that we have these uh, fantastic stories of uh, of um, of uh, Guru Rinpoche's life story, which I, th- I believe also kind of it, it varies from from account to account, uh, and people just get hung up on that and it's just fuck that it's not true that this is just fantasy, just mm. completely disregarding the fact that this is meant to speak to the heart, to speak metaphorically, and not to the rational mind. So that's why I guess we have to kind of get it down to earth in this this uh, time that we're in we need to be able to convey it in a in a secular way as well without taking the uh i wouldn't say magic but without taking the joy out of it yeah the beauty out of it yeah yeah that well describes my uh, my uh, recent thoughts about vajrayana buddhism in the west and especially you know our our method, Pemako Buddhism, because, uh, you know, it's, it's of a different culture, it's a different time, and uh, uh, it is important to speak to the heart. But I think that, you know, we can, we can, you know, in a very simple, modern, casual way, we can still speak to the heart. 
So we don't need mystical elements to to speak to the heart or or um, um, you know fairy tales. And I don't I don't think we need that. So I'm all for like a simple Vajrayana. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We don't need it, or it, 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 it. Um, it's counteractive. Is that the right word? Like it's yes, uh, yes. counterproductive, perhaps in in our culture to to present religious stories. But uh, nevertheless, we have movies and we have uh, <laughs> fictional literature, and they, they can all convey these things, and they quite often convey the very same truths that Buddhism. Uh, conveys or tries to convey. Mm. Um, it's it's quite often the same stories that uh, that go that that are repeated uh, for a reason. So Kim, you mentioned um, before that bodhicitta has two two aspects or two ways to look at it, two perspectives: absolute bodhicitta and relative bodhicitta i think mm -hmm. we've talked a lot about relative bodhicitta now and really get into touch with the feeling of bodhicitta mm. and to have that um, motivation towards beings which is all on the relative level on the relative plane of our experience mm. um, how do you bridge that personally from your experience and and teaching experience with absolute bodhicitta what does that mean to you and how how do you bring it together Well, the way how I see that uh, compassion that you generate through your months and years of practice, sometimes decades of practice, is that we mature. We mature spiritually. We mature as beings from being stuck with the self-based habits to being mature and not being stuck with them and not being self-centered but being open you could say poetically having an having an open heart and having a uh, kind heart and just being able to be present whoever you meet and whatever things you meet in life also challenges so uh, there is definitely like a spiritual maturation that comes with feeling compassion and you know we started started by discussing the challenge that you know bodhicitta is not a ink and paper thing it's a lived experience It's a lived, you could say it's a sensation, you could say it's an, um, maybe you could say that it's an energy, you could say that perhaps you could say that it's an emotion, though it's not like an emotional state, like uh, it's not an emotional state that, uh, it's an emotional state, state that opens you up and keeps you open. So when we generate bodhicitta, when we uh, cultivate compassion, we keep opening up and then we keep contracting because our tendencies do that. But we keep 
opening up. We keep opening up as many times as it's needed. And it's needed many times. But the foundation of this is genuinely feeling, feeling it, not thinking about it, feeling it in our being, feeling compassion. And like I said before, you know, you, there are prerequisites for that. Acknowledging our suffering. And then, you know, we need to have awakening experiences. We need to get our boomies open. We need to have these shifts in our mind, meaning in our energetic body, in our energy centers and energy channels. We need to have those so that we can come up with this, like I often say, phrase it in English, genuine care and concern for others. So it's not like a sticker on a surface, but really inside the surface. We become this compassion. We become this body, chitta. Chitta is a Sanskrit word that doesn't only mean mind and doesn't only mean heart. It means both. Because in Asia, they don't separate uh, kind of thoughts and emotions. It's, it's just one, it's like a mind-heart or heart-mind, what chitta means. And body means awakening or enlightenment. So this is why I often translate bodhicitta as heart-mind of enlightenment or heart-mind of awakening. And that's kind of interesting thing. It is, bodhicitta is heart-mind, meaning condition or state or expression of enlightenment. Bing. <laughs> so it's not only something that, okay, now I'm using, uh, this is a compassion and I'm using it in my practice to then accomplish something else. Uh, that, well, in a sense, it's true. You know, we generate compassion. We use it as a practice to then discover our basic state. But it's not like a, like a, some object or something you use to get somewhere. It's not like that. Bodhicitta is the heart-mind of enlightenment. So when we cultivate bodhicitta and our energy body opens, that's where the heart-mind of enlightenment, in other words, our Buddha nature, is recognized. And what is recognized is what Buddha nature is. That's a genius of the whole idea of compassion, and that's how it works. It isn't complex at all. But uh, unfortunately, you can't find, you know, you know, really clear explanation of what bodhicitta is that often. But that's, that's just how it is. And <clears throat> when it comes to, you know, bodhicitta is a, you can use it as a synonym for Buddha nature for enlightened nature, nature of mind. You can use it as a synonym. Um, so I was referring to the basic characteristics of the nature of mind, our Buddha nature earlier, and 
you know, the, the way how I teach it is that I, I teach three basic characteristics. And the first one is clarity or soberness, self-cognizance of the basic nature itself. It knows itself. It has a knowing quality. That's number one. The second one is aliveness. Aliveness. Liveliness. You could say kindness. Love, compassion. Love, compassion. So there is, you know, the first one is, um, it's like a clarity of a jewel. Clarity of a diamond. Just a pure, pure, flawless clarity of it. That's the soberness. That's the clarity of our mind. Things are so clear, right? And the second characteristic means that aliveness, joyfulness, uh, love, compassion, kindness, it means that there is an energetic quality to it. There is a quality of aliveness to it. Um, just like, you know, if we look at, I'm looking at a big forest from my window, you, I can see trees and it's a clear energy, but those, that clear energy is also alive, very alive, loaded with aliveness. And the third basic characteristic is groundedness, settledness. So, but the, but the second is, <laughs> is aliveness. Is love, compassion. Aha. Uh -huh. So when I cultivate compassion, rationally thinking, it should lead to recognition of the basic state. And that's exactly how it is. Through that second basic characteristics, we can recognize. But of course, a prerequisite for that to happen is us to be, is us to feel the practices. Not only, you know, if we have a, if I if I'm reading, uh, if I'm reading a recitation book here, uh, you know, reading prayers from the book, you know, I have a big book here and it's full of print of prayers. It's not enough to just read the words. We need to feel the meaning. We need to go from external to internal and feel. And through internal, through feeling, energetic sensation, we can go to secret, which is the basic state. But it is so common, unfortunately, that uh, teachers don't know this. And when teachers don't know this, also students don't know this, that they're supposed to notice and recognize what they are feeling. It's like a really stupid stumbling block all over the Dharma. People read these prayers that short or long and repeat them again and again and again, and they just keep repeating them without ever realizing that they carry immense blessings and energy. They just... Uh, habitually bypass the blessings. They don't know that. They don't notice that there is immense blessings in the air. Whether you are reciting those prayers alone or if there is thousand people with you practicing on a big event or something. But they just focus on paper and ink. 
it's it's like a it's the bar is so goddamn low that it's it's shameful, man. You know when people don't when people you know even teachers, big names they they don't know to point out that there is those Buddhas and Bodhisattvas in the air filling the whole venue. It's nuts, man. It's it's ridiculous. So this is something that, you know, I make sure that my students understand that always, even, even if it's a, you say Namo Guru Rinpoche three times, feel it for five seconds, ten seconds, if you only do half a minute practice, right? And you say mantra for three times, then feel it for a moment. Or if it's a longer practice session or whatever it is, or if it's basic prayers, I always uh, tell my students to feel the blessings because that's only when we practice Tantra. But this energetic element is there in, in all. It's there in Hinayana. I've, I've seen it, I've felt it, and I've also witnessed how they don't feel it, recognize it. I've seen the same thing in Zen. I've seen the same thing in so many different places. Uh, I mean, also in Sutric Buddhism, in non-tantric Buddhism, it's there. But uh, systematically, it's not pointed out and it's not practiced correctly. If you, if that's my opinion. Yeah, you were speaking about how bodhicitta was like a how it's you like a you cultivate it on the one hand. But then you come to the realization that it is a basic structure, a basic quality of the mind. So uh, I just think that that is an important point uh, to also tie to, for example, perhaps many who are listening to this have had the experience of, uh, of the first awakening. And uh, it's the same struct, uh, basic structure there that uh, you, um, on the one hand, you have to investigate the the I, the I not. Uh, on the other hand, once that not releases, it's quite evident that it wasn't there uh, in the sense that you thought it was. Hence, the shift in perspective, and it's it's the same, I believe, with the uh, bodhicitta. That uh, on the one hand, you absolutely need to to cultivate it uh, and feel these blessings, as you say, on the one hand, once it opens up, it's just there. And you don't have to do anything about it because it is you. And it is the basic energetic quality of life. This connectedness, openness, friendliness, um, compassion. Definitely. Something that I was reminded, something that I was thinking yesterday, you know, uh, uh, recently, and actually th throughout my life, I've been uh, involved with mar martial arts. And I've gone back to martial arts, uh, both internal and external martial arts, during the recent months. And, and um, there are big differences in pedagogy in martial arts, right? But in, in one of the systems I've recently studied is, it says that, you know, when you learn something basic, then you don't need to keep working on that basic. You can start working on 
something more advanced. And this is a really interesting point because um, I've been kind of contemplating this and it's um, my daughter, she went to start at school uh, like a month ago and, you know, they are learning to write letters. Well, she already knew how to write, but uh, as we all know, when we are children and go to school, you know, we start writing letters. So you, you have a shaking hand and you don't have the coordination of the hand and the pen, and then you write the letter A, right? And then you do the next repetition of A and the next one. So you have a whole page full of A in block letters, right? But then at some point, maybe after a couple of months, then you can write perfectly nice A and you've learned it. And you've learned the rest of the letters. You've learned the basics. And then you can move on in your language studies to something more advanced. But this exactly rarely happens in Dharma. People keep learning the block letters. Keep A. Can I write it? No, I just have to keep writing it very mindfully. Mm. A, B. You know, it's a... So what I'm trying to say, the point that I'm trying to make is that if we are talking about authentic dharma, it is a process. And process means that, you know, it's an arc of like a circle of learning or arc of learning. So you advance on the way. So if you learn something basic, like I was saying in uh, internal martial art, that when you have done some basic practice for some time, and then you learn it, you master it then you don't need to repeat the same thing over and over and over and over again. You can forget it because it's in your pocket now. You have mastered that bit. So you move on to next, the next thing in the, in the process. Of course, it needs uh, plenty of uh, glimpses of our wakeful nature. And we need like a whole bunch or a bundle of awakening experiences, cessations of mind to become fully enlightened. So, so it's a, it's a, it's a, I don't, I wouldn't want to say enormous task because enormous sounds distant and too big, but it is a task of its own. But <laughs> my view is that just like, uh, you know, we have one or two doctors in our sangha and they've studied, they study a lot to become doctors. But I wouldn't say that finishing our purification practice or becoming fully enlightened is, is it even that demanding than to become a doctor? So, so it is a process that has a beginning, middle, and end. And that's how it should be. If a method is valid, it works, and it um, produces. It gives results. 
So, like I often say that this happens in all other forms of education, forms and different fields of education. People start their studies and learn and come to end of their studies and then they graduate as doctors or gardeners or whatever. But this doesn't happen in Dharma. But this needs to be changed because it's ridiculous, right? <laughs> so, so, so it's good to discuss, you know, what absolute bodhicitta is, which is our nature of mind. It is the heart mind of enlightenment that is sober, clear, radiating with love and blessings. We realize that we are the source of blessings. It's not the tantric guru or it's not the lineage gurus. We are the Buddhas. We are the Mahasiddhas. We are the fully enlightened beings that radiate blessings and are the source of blessings. <laughs> we radiate love, pure love. This is important to understand. And I think that uh, that's the end stop, beginning, middle, and end. That's the end stop. When we live in that experience, when we have fully discovered that we are Buddhas, we are fully enlightened beings, we have removed all those shackles and confusions that have made us small <coughs> and contracted. So contraction doesn't happen anymore. And now we need to keep stretching open. It is something that is perfectly natural, this natural state, right? And um, no, also no need to keep cultivating compassion because that is bodhicitta, the heart-mind of enlightenment. And when you've realized it, when you've stabilized it, when you've removed all the shackles, then you can focus on doing other stuff or not do anything. No need for practice, no need for, like they say, no more learning. You know, just one important point on that is that also it seems that, you know, the everything then becomes integrated into this, like all parts of the personality then become natural expressions uh, so that... Uh, uh, the, the very ordinary human emotions and thoughts and all of this will then be uh, an expression of bodhicitta uh, so that it doesn't come in just one form. It doesn't mm. come in this stroking on the... But it can be a smack as well, you know, from a, from a point of clarity and real compassion. Yeah. That is, a, that is an excellent point, um, but it's also a tricky point because there is so much abuse, so much, uh, uh, how should I say, like a mistreatment um, in all religions and traditions, uh, you know, on the excuse that, well, this is enlightened behavior. So it's a very, very difficult, difficult to... To, it's, it's a broad topic, let's put it like that. But uh, it's, that's how it is, you know. Uh, 
just like um, some things can be met with peace. Some some things in life cannot be met with peace. So sometimes you do need to raise hell. Uh, and that's just how it is. That's how it is. That's the nature of things. And of course, when we're talking about nature of mind, it cannot take the stand of always remaining peaceful. And uh, it cannot be like that. Wisdom and compassion. Wisdom means discernment. Manjushri means discernment. So if it was only love and compassion, then it would be like this all the time. But just like uh, you know, Guru Rinpoche was mentioned, uh, and there are many other great Mahasiddhas in the history, fully enlightened men and women who have been extremely wrathful and have, have, have uh, expressed points of criticism about society and about all kinds of things. So that's exactly how life remains. But not to be caught up in samsara. Like I said, that Buddhas are both in, but also out of it at the same time. To come back for a moment to um, absolute bodhicitta, what I wanted um, to add there, and I really liked about your way of explaining it, Kim, that this energetic aspect of us, it's outflowing, it's radiating. And I sometimes you read that, um, yeah, if you practice emptiness meditation, only focusing on the emptiness aspect of everything without the compassion aspect, you get stuck. And we know that you get stuck on the spiritual stages. At one point, there is just, you cannot go beyond your... Um, yeah, your own personal mind in mind purification, just just your your personal accumulations and everything. And uh, I think this explains it pretty well that that this bodhicitta, this energetic aspect, it's expression. And if you only try to purify your mind for your own sake, you try to purify impressions. Yeah. It's all coming in. And you are in this situation of I'm freeing myself from all impulses that come to me and then I'm fine. And this quality, which is at the same time radiating, expressing itself, that's the energetic aspect. And if you only focus on purify impressions, you don't touch that. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's, like, it's like freeing yourself from the world and then forgetting that you have to free the world of yourself as well. I mean, if you only recognize the clarity, the knowing aspect, the empty aspect of your mind, that is recognition of the nature of mind, but it can be one-sided if, if you fixate on that. then. Yeah. And because of that, you will never finish the process. There is something that came to my mind. Uh, I have a couple of acquaintances who are... Um, uh, practitioners of um, both Hinayana and Mahayana, but perhaps a bit more on the Hinayana side. And, um, well, I've discussed this with a bunch of people throughout the years that, you know, 
I just want to like clarify one uh, one really important point, because if you rely on ink and paper completely, and if you start reading the descriptions of Hinayana adepts and Hinayana masters, and then compare those to adepts and masters from Mahayana and Vajrayana, it looks like it's the same. And this is always the stumbling block with with a practice that is non-tantric, because when there's no element of transmission, it kind of removes a way to clarify that point, right? But uh, what, I, what I have sometimes seen is that Hinayana practitioners, they say that, well, what, Mahasid, what is said about Buddhahood and Mahasiddhahood, full enlightenment, sounds exactly the same or pretty much the same as what is said about Arhats uh, of Hinayana, you know, those who fully uh, realize the Hinayana vehicle, small vehicle. Uh, but again, this is from people who completely or mostly rely on ink and paper alone. And you know, I've seen this 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 uh, conclusion being made so many times that kind of feels hurts my head a little bit, you know. But it is not even nearly the same, not even nearly, and. Um, uh, so in case if you know somebody who suffers of this predicament, I just suggest the following. Uh, chant Namo Guru Rinpoche for a day. Practice Guru Yoga with Guru Rinpoche, Shakyamuni Buddha, Milarepa, Jesus Christ, Krishna, every, any great spiritual figure, any great spiritual master. And you will probably realize that uh, Hinayana and Mahayana are very different vehicles, very different endpoints. So that is, that is uh, I wish to suggest this in a spirit of friendliness and kindness while being critical, while exercising my own discernment and uh, based on my observations, that those th those two things are so far so far apart from each other that there's no debate on that point, not for me at least. With all respect. Yeah, so I think that what people don't understand there is that uh, so if you recognize the nature of the nature of the finger. Uh, then what you come to is the same nature as you would the whole hand, the whole body, and whole being. Uh, but people, I think especially, again, in the modern West now, with this anti-hierarchical structure, like there is, like tear down all hierarchies uh, because they're just seen as corrupt or like a power. Like, a, like when you say this, people will think, when you say, Mahayana is above Hinayana. People would think that, oh yeah, but it's because he's practicing Mahayana and he's like right. uh, <laughs> he's uh, thinks like he's it's better. 
uh, it's morally better and like it's better in every way, but it's not that. It's just it transcends and includes just like any whole holistic model. Uh, you have levels that transcend but also include each other. So um, it's the same when we like you see this in in uh, in kids when they grow up. They go from like identifying. Uh, 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 like going through these various perspectives, shifts in developmental like consciousness, yeah, developmental yeah. consciousness, and it always it, it transcends it. There's some new perspective opens up, but it still includes this this former perspective. And I think that's yeah. the way to understand these this mm. uh, hierarchical structure, which is it's there. It's not. <laughs> I don't. For me, it's not a debate either, and it's silly to go to be dragged have to be dragged down to the level of no every everything is the same and everything is as uh, works equally well because it doesn't and that's it's just a truth mm. yeah i think that wraps it up very nicely to bring it back how how can a beginner or an advanced practitioner of dharma um really apply that what we have talked about here apply bodhicitta um i think we've went to, through all the, the essential points of that first of all make it your own in a sense don't just read about it but reflect on it think about it you don't have to make huge meditations but think about it think about <laughs> compassion and what it means to you and then you get to yourself and mm. then realize your suffering realize that and then the compassion towards yourself that you're suffering and that you want to relieve that suffering will bring you on the path to to do something against it to practice to meditate to practice what we have been talked about and then through that certainty that experience these awakenings um, that you go through when you do that genuinely this will unravel the mystery of bodhicitta that we hope to clarify a little bit on a on a conversational level here and with that um the whole thing starts to kind of be happening on its own you begin to really understand what the masters were talking about and all the buddhas because you feel it you sense the unity of emptiness and compassion fullness and emptiness and then you realize absolute bodhicitta and the dharma is not a mystery and the full experience of it reveals itself yeah and this is exactly why why uh bodhicitta is what is the most crucial in this aspect that uh with proper cultivation of bodhicitta there is no there is no way to get stuck like uh uh it will drive it forward because it's no longer about you uh so it's not enough to become happy than to become comfortable and that's one of the major pitfalls the way i see it is that okay so i've relieved uh enough suffering now that i can live my life comfortably but bodhicitta drives it forward because it's not about you then and mm. then you cannot settle for a partial partial recognition yeah what did what did keeps making your life miserable 
<laughs> yeah, it does. <laughs> and that's a good thing. That's that's the selling selling uh, point. <laughs> you don't have enough suffering of your own. Take on everything. Take on all the suffering. Yeah. Thank you for this chat, gents. You. And if in case if somebody is listening or watching this, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs>